Hebrews chapter 11, in verse 30, it says, By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. And then in verse 31, it says, By faith the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. We've spent a considerable amount of time with the heroes of the faith. Remember the chapter began with an explanation of faith in verse 1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. And then there were examples of faith. We looked at Abel and Enoch and Noah, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Jacob, Joseph and the parents of Moses, and then Moses himself. The writer of Hebrews is taking us through a little mini walk in the Old Testament. He's making his way through Genesis and Exodus. He's going to come upon Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy and then push us all the way through to the book of Judges. The writer of Hebrews isn't simply interested, though, in giving us a history lesson about the people of Israel. But rather, he's calling the Hebrew Christians to not only understand what faith means, but to persevere in that faith, to remain disciplined, convinced that what God says concerning Jesus is true. Remember what the writer of Hebrews has told us, that Jesus is the Lord, Jesus is supreme, and because Jesus is supreme, we have a supreme calling to live our lives in submission to him. And because Jesus is supreme, and because we're called to live a life of faith, he reminds us of some of the dimensions of that faith. Remember what we've already learned. Abraham's faith was sacrificial in verses 17 through 19. Isaac's was a repentant faith in verse 22. Or actually verse 20. Jacob's faith was a worshiping faith in verse 21. Joseph's faith, an undying faith, was listed by Moses' parents. And they had a loving and fearless faith in verse 23. Joseph's faith was an undying faith in verse 22. Moses possessed a self-denying faith in verses 24 through 28. And so the writer, the writer is pointing out again. By faith, they, the children of Israel, passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, which the Egyptians attempting to do so were drowned in verse 29. It was a faith that believed that God was in control. Moses urged the children of Israel to obey God against insurmountable opposition and experience the deliverance of God. And it would be a lie, I think, to say that the people weren't frightened as their enemies approached them, intent on destroying them. But the children of Israel passed through the waters, even though they're pursued by their enemies. The children of Israel are saved. The enemies of Israel are drowned. 
The Lord God performs a miracle of salvation and deliverance when the children of Israel acted by faith. And so God provides a way of deliverance for those who believe. And so you can imagine for the Hebrew Christian who are are experiencing unspeakable persecution, they need to be encouraged. And now we add two more gems. Two more facets to this jewel we call faith. Joshua and the children of Israel are going to experience a kind of conquering faith. Jericho was a strong city and it had high walls and a strong people. And the writer also mentions Rahab the harlot. She's the great, great grandmother of David and ancestor of Jesus. It becomes a picture of a person who turned from a life of sin to serving the living God. And because she listened and obeyed the testimony of God, she became one of the great women in the history of the Bible. In the eyes of God and believers around the world. I want you to remember that Abraham believed God could raise the dead. Isaac and Jacob predicted the future. Joseph anticipated the exodus long before it ever happened. The parents of Moses defied the Pharaoh and Moses forsook the pleasures of sin in order to identify with the people of God in verse 25. Moses left the land of Egypt. The people of Israel kept the Passover in verse 28. They crossed the Red Sea in verse 29. And now when we come to this particular portion, they're going to shout down an impregnable fortress. What seems like an unconquerable city. Rahab will protect some Hebrew spies. But as always, you might be saying, well, what does this have to do with me? It has everything to do with you. It has everything to do with your faith. We're going to find out. Look at verse 30. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. That story, by the way, begins in the book of Joshua. As you go back to the book of Joshua and you read the first six chapters... God promises to deliver Jericho into the hands of Joshua. And Joshua has faith that's going to lead to victory. Joshua and the children of Israel are going to march around Jericho for seven days. And I want you to think about this for all of a sudden. Because when the children of Israel come into the land and they're coming to this particular portion of the land, it's the, it's the gateway into the land and it's their first military encounter. And all of this must have looked really, really foolish. Because in the ancient world, just like in the modern world, the way that you overcome an enemy is usually through numbers and strength and and technology. And so you can imagine these people just marching around the city. It must have all seemed very, very foolish to the inhabitants of Jericho. You mean you're going to defeat us by marching? 
In order to understand, we have to read a little bit from Joshua chapter 6. I'm going to read quickly through verses 1 through 5. In Joshua chapter 6, it says, Now Jericho was securely shut up because of the children of Israel. In other words, it was reinforced because they knew that the children of Israel were coming. When it says shut up, it means nobody gets in, nobody gets out. In verse 2, it says, And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I've given Jericho into your hand, its king and the mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all you men of war. You shall go all around the city once. This you shall do six days. And seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. But the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times. And the priests shall blow their trumpets. Verse 5. It shall come to pass when they make a long blast with the ram's horn. And when you hear the sound of the trumpet. And all the people will shout with a great shout. Then the wall of the city will fall down flat. And the people shall go up every man straight before him. And the right response would be you're kidding right? Really? That's what you want us to do? That's the plan? Verse 6. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, proceed and march around the city and let him who is armed advance before the ark of the Lord. So it was when Joshua had spoken to the people that the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of the ram's horns before the Lord advanced and blew the trumpets and the ark of the covenant of the Lord followed them. And now go all the way to verse 21. It says, and they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep and donkey with the edge of the sword. Verse 22. But Joshua had said to the two men who had spied out the country, go into the harlot's house and from there bring out the woman and all that she has as you swore to her. And the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab, her father, her mother, her brothers, and all that she had. So they brought out all her relatives and left them outside the camp of Israel. But they burned the city and all that was in it with fire. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. Verse 25, and Joshua spared Rahab, the harlot, her father's household, and all that she had. So she dwells in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent out to spy out Jericho. I want you to think for just a moment. What do we discover? In that big passage of scripture, we discover some broad principles and great illustrations and practical truths, spiritual truths. Think about what's happening. They're entering the land and remember what we've already learned. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, they're given a promised land and a promised seed. Their faith has to overcome obstacles. Like I said earlier, Jericho is the gateway. It's the entryway into the promised land. 
But the children of Israel must first rely on spiritual warfare before they can engage in actual warfare. In our walk with Jesus, it's exactly the same way. Perhaps the most difficult thing for me in contemplating, anticipating, even thinking about what it meant to be a Christian, I thought, I can't be a Christian. It's impossible. I'm not a good person. I'm not the kind of person who goes to church. I'm not the kind of person who reads the Bible. I, it's my understanding that, that if I go to, if I become a Christian, they're going to expect me to pray. They're going to expect me to read the Bible. They're going to expect me to live a life that seems to be consistent with what Jesus is saying. I didn't want to be a Christian for the same reason that I hated bowling. I'm not good at it. I roll the ball down the center aisle. It goes into the gutter and people look at me and they say, are you having fun? And I go, no, I'm not having fun. There's nothing fun about throwing a ball into the gutter and losing the game. There's nothing fun about being a Christian. I'm not good at it. It never, ever, ever, ever occurred to me that in order to be a Christian, I would have to trust God that by his Holy Spirit, that he was going to do the work in my heart, that he was going to change me from the inside out. In our walk, Jesus is our captain and our victor. We trust Jesus to wage the war. We face strongholds. And I want you to understand the context. They're supposed to enter the land. Question, are there already people living in that land? Do they want to leave? And when you became a Christian, were there things in your life and things in your heart and things in your past and even things in your present that didn't want to go away? Maybe it was drugs or maybe it was alcohol or maybe it was smoking or maybe it was some sort of relationship. Maybe it was something. There was something. There was something that you didn't want to go away and it didn't want to go away and so we have to trust Jesus to wage the war to face the strongholds the walled cities that are unwilling to submit to God and that are unwilling to submit to God's plan because just like the people in the land of Israel didn't want to go there are things in our lives that don't want to go but God's called him to occupy the land and this is important Human reason says it's an impregnable fortress and it's going to require superior military strength. But faith says, trust God, look to the Lord. In the natural and in the human, you come up to the impregnable walled city of a group of people who don't want to leave and you go, how in the world is that going to ever disappear? And when you become a Christian, you wonder how certain things in your life, if they'll ever go away. And faith says you have to trust the Lord. You have to look to the Lord. You have to ask, what is God's strategy? Faith often appears foolish to men. It looks stupid. Well, what are you going to do? I'm going to go to church. Why? When there's so many good things on TV on Wednesday nights. 
What are you going to do? I'm going to seek out like-minded men and women who I can talk with and who I can pray with, who I can encourage and who can encourage me. Why would you do that? As if that's going to make a difference? As if opening up your Bible is going to make a difference? Praying is going to make a difference? Fellowship is going to make a difference? And the reality is, yeah. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And trusting and believing God seems the most foolish thing that you could possibly do. Especially when your family and your friends say, aren't you worried about the future? And you say, you know, God's in charge of the future. What are you saying to me? I'm going to trust the Lord. That's crazy talk. You're going to trust the Lord? What does that mean? Well, I believe that there's a real God who's in charge of the universe and that he created the heavens and the earth and that he's in charge of everything. Yeah, right. You see, trusting and believing God To the people who don't know him and who don't love him and don't believe him, this seems like the craziest thing that you could possibly do. And so when the spies, you'll remember, first went into the land of Kadesh Barnea, they brought back an unfavorable report in Numbers chapter 13. The Joshua and Caleb and, and, and 10 other guys went in there and they said, okay, tell us about the land. Well, it is true that it's full of milk and honey and there's grapevines and, and there's all kinds of cool, wonderful things. But the truth is there's this, there's this gigantic race of people there. They are fairly... Well, let me just put it to you this way. They all look like National Basketball Association. Everyone is six feet, seven feet, eight feet. They're big, they're strong, they're tough. They don't look like they want to leave. And if we try to take their land, they're going to kill us all. And it's a bad idea. And you'll remember what Joshua and Caleb said. God's promised us this land. He's miraculously delivered us from slaves as Egypt. He's promised us this land. Let's believe him and let's trust him. And you'll remember that the people wanted to stone them, kill them. And they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years until all of them died. And so now they're back. They're back. Joshua and Caleb are back. And the people were big and the enemy was tough. But they're asking a question, is there any wall that's too big, too fortified, too strong? You see, if this is the gateway into the place where we belong, and there is this gigantic thing that is preventing us from occupying the land that God has promised to us, how are we going to deal with it? And each and every one of you has your own story of things that you've struggled with of issues that have come up over and over and over again, suggesting that you probably shouldn't be a Christian and that the Christian life isn't really a part of who you should be. But the Bible says, no, God's promised you and delivered you from your sin. 
and that you're to occupy Christ. You see, they're to occupy a land, but we as Christians occupy the person of Jesus. And I want you to think about this for just a moment. Jericho is old, and some people believe it's the oldest continuously inhabited city in the world. Archaeologists have conducted several digs. I've had the privilege of being there over maybe the past 30 years, three times. I have literally gone up against the side of the layers of the ancient city of Jericho. The the city covers roughly eight or nine acres. It had an inner wall and an outer wall. The inner wall was 12 feet thick and the outer wall was six feet thick. Houses we know from archaeologists were discovered on the walls. And we know that from Joshua chapter 2 verse 15. According to the archaeologists, the walls were some 30 feet high. And sometime in the past, the walls were violently destroyed. And we have no idea who lived on those walls or defended those walls except for one character, Rahab. We know of one person who was there and who lived there and who actually lived on that wall. Dr. John Davis writes, quote, a single march around the nine-acre mound probably took 25 to 35 minutes. It should not be concluded that every Israelite took part in the march. Such a feat would not only have been impractical, but would have been impossible. It's more probable to assume that the march was carried out by tribal representation, unquote. We have every reason to believe that by this time, the population of Israel had swollen to maybe close to a million and a half people. And so again, can you imagine, even if there's just tens of thousands maybe a hundred thousand people marching around this particular city. The point becomes in order for the children of Israel to live the life that God had called them to, they would have to live that life by faith. And that becomes a type and a picture for you as a Christian. You are called to live your life by faith. You are not called to live your life apart from the resources of God. We won't have a public victory unless we're willing to have a private worship experience. And if you're in any way familiar with the book of Joshua, you'll remember that in the opening chapters, Joshua has an encounter with the angel of the Lord. When he sees the angel of the Lord, he says, whose side are you on? Their side or on our side? And he goes, I'm on my side. He goes, who are you? He goes, I'm the commander of the armies of the Lord. And Joshua fell on his face and he worshiped him. And Joshua said, what does my Lord say to my servant? When we look at the capture of the city, we see several things. In order to capture the city, they had to obey their leaders in verses 6 through 9. They had patience and faith in verses 10 through 14. They trusted God for the impossible in verses 15 and 16 of Joshua chapter 6. They obeyed the Lord in every detail. When you get to verse 17 and then you read the rest of the chapter and you go all the way down, the Lord said, this is what I want you to do and this is what I want you to do and this is what I want you to do and this is what I want you to do. 
to do. And they did exactly what the Lord told them to do. And I'm here to tell you that if you read your New Testament and you read what Jesus has to say and then what Jesus speaks to you and says, hey, you know what? Look to me. Follow me. Believe me. Abandon your sin. Go away from the stuff that's causing you harm. Embrace the stuff that's, giving, that's, that's doing good. The animals, by the way, There were certain treasures that the city were to devote to the, to the Lord. The animals, the citizens were to be slain. Rahab and her family were the only ones who were going to be saved alive. Sometimes we obey God before the battle, but we fail to obey the Lord once we experience the victory. The Lord will give the children of Israel total victory over Jericho because they trust the Lord. And I want you to think about that for just a minute. Because whether the wall that seems to be blocking your entry into the place that God wants you to occupy, whether it's a physical addiction, a drug addiction, an alcohol addiction, a sexual addiction, whatever the thing is, whatever the issue is, whatever it is, our weapons are not carnal or worldly. They're spiritual. We're promised divine power. And I think that this is exactly the place that Paul has in mind when he writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 and 5, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God, for the pulling down of strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Paul basically says, guess what? In order to live the Christian life, it isn't like the life that you grew up with. It's a life of humility and trust and dependence. You see, you may have grown up in a world of self-sufficiency, pride. But the Bible basically is urging you, nudging you to love the Lord, to love God's people. To cultivate your gift and your calling. And so there's preserving faith. Look at verse 31 at the beginning. It says in Hebrews eleven thirty-one, By faith the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe. Now again I want you to think about this. She's called a harlot in Joshua. She's called a harlot in Hebrews. And this is, seems like a little bit harsh at first because you're thinking, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Why doesn't it say by faith the ex-harlot Rahab? That would be way more comforting. But there's a reason why the Bible says what it is, and I, I'm going to come to that in just a moment. It's going to make sense in just a moment. Just be patient with me. Let's look at the text again. By faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe. Who perished? The people of Jericho. Why did they perish? In the text here, it says, by faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe. 
This is interesting to me because the word did not believe is not the normal Greek word for not belief. The normal word for not believe is apisteo. Pisteo is the word sometimes translated trust, sometimes translated faith, but this word is the word apitheo in the Greek language. It means more than simply doesn't believe. The word apiteo means to disobey, disobedience. One Bible scholar, Marvin Vincent, calls this, quote, disbelief as it manifests itself in disobedience, unquote. The correct translation should probably include the element of disobedience like it does in the RSV. If you have a New American Standard or, or, or an NIV, it says, by faith the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who disobeyed. And I think that that's the right translation, and, and I think that the right translation is this. It's the kind of disbelief that leads to disobedience. This is going to become an important part of our study in this message. Because the people of Jericho, we learn from Joshua chapter 6, when Rahab is speaking, and, and she basically, we're going to later find out, says, we've heard about you. We've heard about the miracles that took place in Egypt. We heard about the incredible plagues and the deliverance that you guys experienced. And how all of these people who die and who everyone who stands before you perishes. But the people of Jericho don't believe that. They don't believe that the God of Israel has rescued them. They don't believe that the God of Israel has a special plan for them. They don't believe that God has promised them the land. They don't believe any of that. Can you imagine if they did? Hey, you know what? God has promised this land to a group of people who want to love him and honor him. And hey, we've been living a life of rebellion and disobedience, committed to the deities of Canaan. We're living our lives apart from the divine revelation of the true God of the Bible. When it says, by faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe. Because remember, they don't believe. And that disbelief is going to result in dis disobedience. A person on my radio program today made the accusation, you know, why are you against people who don't believe the way that you believe? And I go, I, th I think you're missing the point. It isn't I'm against people who don't agree with me because I had the same argument before I have became a Christian. I would say to my friends, are you going to tell me that all Muslims are going to hell? All Hindus are going to hell? Are you telling me everybody's going to hell just because they don't believe that the way that you believe? And nobody told me the right answer. The right answer is nobody goes to hell because they believe or disbelieve the way I do. People go to hell because they're in rebellion and disobedience against God. They're not going to hell because of me and my belief or lack thereof. There's a true God. There's a living God. There's a just God. And so, for some people, this causes great consternation. Why does the Lord insist that everyone die in Jericho? And we're not satisfied with the statement that God 
doesn't owe anyone an explanation for what he does. The Bible makes it clear that the people of Jericho and the culture of Jericho, like Sodom, had reached a point of fullness of perversion, a point where decency is completely abandoned. It's the place where what they're doing invites judgment. The holiness and the justice of God insisted that something be done. And the entire Canaanite society had long past reached the point of no return. According to 1 Kings chapter 14, verse 24, the whole land was populated by perverts who were performing every imaginable perversion that you can imagine. There were no moral boundaries. The kind of culture that I, that I try to help people understand, imagine a group of people who kill their unborn children. Oh, wait a minute. Imagine a group of people who give birth to their children and then sacrifice their children on the altars of a deity who requires that their children be killed in order to satisfy their bloodlust. I don't know if any of you ever saw the Mel Gibson movie uh, about Apocalypto, about when the people are coming to the Mayan culture and peninsula and, and the, the Spaniards are going to eventually make their way, but the whole movie surrounds this group of people who are living in, in Central America and they're a bloodthirsty lot of people who cut people's heads off and, and build pyramids of skulls and, and who worship and glorify death and who march you up a temple and who cut your heart out with an obsidian knife and then cut your head off and then kick it down the stairs. If you ever saw that movie, you have a tiny understanding of what the people in Canaan were like. Imagine a culture where everyone is like Jeffrey Dahmer, a serial killer, where you will kill people and cut their head off and you will sodomize them. There's no moral boundaries. There's no moral restrictions. There's, there's no boundaries whatsoever. And the Lord wanted to keep Israel as pure as he possibly could for as long as he possibly could. And why do you suppose that is? Why does God want the children of Israel to be pure and to remain pure for as long as possible? Because God is going to send a Messiah. He's going to send Jesus to be the savior of the world. And God's plan is that a virgin is going to conceive and bring forth a child. And I know it sounds like a terrible, horrible joke, but imagine a world in which there are no virgins. Had Mary been immoral and impure, then God's plan would have been effectively thwarted. And Rahab's confession is found in Joshua chapter 2, verse 11. Let's go there just for a second. In Joshua chapter 2... I'm going to begin reading in verse 1 where it says, Now Joshua the son of Nut sent out two men from Acacia Grove to spy secretly, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went, and they came to the house of a harlot. 
named Rahab and lodged there. And it was told the king of Jericho saying, Behold, men have come here tonight from the children of Israel to search out the country. So the king of Jericho sent to Rahab. Now think about that. Just pause for just a moment. Why did the king of Jericho send to Rahab? Anybody have any plausible reason to believe why he might do that? Is it because he suspects that there's something different about her already? That he suspects, why is she the first suspect in case there's going to be betrayal? And in case that if someone's going to harbor the fugitives, why does the king think that it might be Rahab? But here we go. So the king of Jericho sent to Rahab saying, bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they've come to search out, the, out all the country. Then the woman took the two men and hid them. So she said, yes, the men came to me. But I didn't know where they came from. And it happened as the gate was being shut when it was dark that the men went out where the men went. I do not know. Pursue them quickly or you may overtake them. In other words, she's saying, guess what? They've already left. Go find them before they get away from you. Verse 6. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them with the stalks of flax, which she had laid on the roof. Then the men pursued them by the roads to the Jordan, to the fords. And as soon as those who pursued them had gone out, they shut the gate. Now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know, listen carefully, verse 9. I know that the Lord has given you the land. How does she know that? How does she know that? I know that the Lord has given you the land. Remember what the writer of Hebrews has just said that we've just studied? By faith, Rahab hid the spies. Listen to what she's saying. I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us. And that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites. And who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, he is the God of heaven above and beneath the earth. I want you to think about what that means. It means not only Rahab, but everyone in Jericho has heard this story. Just like everyone on TV who has watched A.D., the miniseries, or who watched the Ten Commandments, or who watched TV, or who watched the History Channel, they watch and they see what the Bible says and they go, you know, we know that the Bible says that there's this Jesus and that he loves us and that he died on the cross and that he rose from the dead. And, and we know that according to the Bible, Jesus is coming back to judge the living and the dead, but we don't really believe it and we don't really want to change 
And the people of Jericho have heard everything that we've already read about. Oh, you mean there's this group of of people from Egypt and they're being released mightily by the hand of God because God has a plan for them and has made a promise to them? Her faith led to works where she risks her life to save the spies. And this very issue is found in James chapter 2, verse 25 and 26, where James, the brother of Jesus, writes, Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot, think about it, writer of Hebrews calls her a harlot. James calls her a harlot. Hebrew, the, the, the book of Joshua calls her a harlot. I'm just going to ask you a question. What do you suppose her occupation was? I know, if we go, I don't know. That's probably not the right answer. But when the Bible says, in James chapter 2, verse 25, Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way Verse 26, for as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. The writer of, of, of James is basically saying, guess what? It wasn't good enough to just simply believe something. Rahab was willing to act on it. In other words, think about what the text is saying. By faith, Rahab kept the Israelites safe. By faith, she didn't perish with those who didn't believe. The city will fall. She becomes a type and a picture of the believer in Jesus. And you might ask, well, what do you mean? Again, I want you to think about this for just a moment. Was Rahab a sinner? You know, think about it. Hebrews, harlot. Joshua, harlot. James, harlot. I don't think harlot's an honorary title. I think she's called harlot because she really is a harlot. Her sin? Moral impurity. Sexual immorality. Some scholars have suggested she may have managed a brothel, but the text doesn't necessarily support that. But the text does sufficiently support the idea that there's something broken in her behavior, in her moral and her sexual behavior. But remember what the Bible says, all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. I don't want you to shout this out because this isn't about embarrassing anyone, but I want you in your own mind to think about the most miserable, wicked thing that you've ever done. And imagine that's your title. Gino, thief, liar, pervert. Whatever word you want to use, just think of the wicked, wicked thing that used to be you. And imagine that this is the title that you have to carry throughout your whole Christian walk. So-and-so, the so-and-so. But see, I think that this is part of the point. Rahab was a sinner. Every human being is a sinner in need of a savior. Rahab was under condemnation. 
I want you to think about this for just a minute. Had God pronounced judgment on Jericho, what's the answer? Yeah. Just like God has pronounced judgment on the world. Remember the most famous verse in all of the Bible? For God so loved the world, you know it. He gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. For God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world. He didn't have to send Jesus into the world to condemn the world. It was already under condemnation. The Bible already tells us that the world is destined for judgment. We live in a world that's destined for judgment. It was just a matter of time before judgment and death would come upon the city. Everyone and everything in the city was destined to die according to Joshua chapter 6 verse 1. And the Bible in the New Testament makes the repeated claim that everyone in this world is destined to die and is destined for judgment. And so we see everyone a sinner and everyone condemned. And then number three, Rahab experiences an extended period of grace. In what way? Remember, the city was under judgment and had been for years. If you look at Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 1, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 23, in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, the Bible makes this repeated claim concerning the promise that the land is going to be given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and his descendants, but the land is going to be under judgment, and the people who are occupying that land are going to be under judgment, but God is going to give them grace, not for 100 years, not for 200 years, not even for 300 years, but for 400 years, 400 hundred years, they're going to be given an opportunity to change, to turn, to do something different. And by the way, if you give people a chance to be different, will they? Sometimes the people of Nineveh repented, but the people in Canaan, no. Think about all the people that you know who have been given time after time and chance after chance and repeated chance after chance, this period of grace. In Genesis chapter 15, verses 13 and 16, we discover that the inhabitants of the land are afforded 400 years to forsake the sin before the judgment is going to finally fall on the land. The people of Jericho think about it. They're aware that the children of Israel are coming. Joshua chapter 2, verse 10. They heard about the slavery. They heard about the exodus. They heard about the miracles. They heard about the, the victories. They heard, and they must have known that a period of 40 years went by as they wandered in the wilderness. Add to that Joshua chapter 4, verse 19, and Joshua chapter 5, verse 10, and then add to that what you already know. They show up. And on the first day, they march around the city. Do you know what that march is? It isn't just simply a Jericho march, and it isn't just simply a march of faith. I'm going to suggest to you that it's something else as well. It's grace. We're here. We're here, and the judgment's coming. 
And they come back the next day and they march around the city and they say, we're here and the judgment's coming. And then they march around the city again. They say, we're here and the judgment's coming. And they march around the city again and they say, we're here and the judgment's coming. Doesn't that sound, and it happens seven times. It's almost like the seven year tribulation that's going to take place in the not too distant future where a year is going to buy and another year is going to go by. And there's going to be a repeated message that takes place during this time. And that is that the judgment is coming. The judgment is coming. The day of judgment is coming. And there's going to be two kinds of people. And the vast majority of those people are going to say, we still don't believe you. We still don't believe you. Judgment's coming. We don't believe you. Judgment's coming. We don't believe you. And then the seventh day shows up. And seven times they march around the city. Think about it. Rahab's a sinner. So are you. Rahab was under condemnation. So are you. Rahab was extended a period of grace. It's also true of you. Every single time you've ever heard any Bible study, any time anyone has ever said to you, There's a God who loves you. There's a Jesus who died for you. There's a mercy and a forgiveness that's willing to be extended to you. This is what the Bible means when it says you're saved by grace, through faith. She's a sinner under condemnation, experiences grace. But guess what else she did? Rahab heard the word of the Lord. Remember what we've already read? Remember what Rahab said? We've heard about you. We heard about what the, and she calls him the Lord. She doesn't just simply say Yahweh or Jehovah or the God of the Israeli people. She says the Lord. She's heard the word of the Lord. She heard a message. She heard a message of deliverance. She heard a message of miracles. She heard a message of judgment concerning the true God. And the people of God. And she believed. She believed the word of the Lord. Remember what we've already learned. Faith is the evidence of things unseen. Faith comes by hearing the word of the Lord. It's faith that saves the sinner. Even the most ungodly sinner. And now think about it. Now think about Rahab living on the wall. In condemnation. Destined for judgment. And the spies show up to spy out the land. And she's wondering. She's wondering. Do I have to die with everybody else in the city or is there some hope for me and my family? You know, it wasn't the threat of judgment that encouraged me to become a Christian or that that convicted my heart that the Bible was true and Jesus is Lord. It wasn't the awful thought that I might go to hell. It was an entirely different thought. It was the thought that what if there's a God and what if he loves me and what if I could experience that love? What if I could experience forgiveness of sin and the cleansing of heart and the possibility 
of being someone different in Christ. Remember what she said in Joshua chapter 2, verse 9. I know that the Lord has given you the land. Remember what I said to you earlier? How could she possibly know that? Someone said to her, God is going to give the Jewish people the land. And she believed it. There must have come a time in your life where someone said to you, God loves you and Jesus loves you. God sent Jesus to die on the cross for your sin. And he rose from the dead to prove that that's true. And you had one of two responses. That might be true. Or maybe you came to a place in your life where you said, I think that is true. You believed by faith that God the Father sent God the Son to live the life that you couldn't live, to die on the cross for your sins, and rose from the dead to prove that it's true. And because he's alive, you can be different. Now I want you to think about what Rahab does. She proves her faith by her works. She risks her life. Because guess what? By hiding the spies, that's exactly what's happening. By housing them, by hiding them, protecting them, she chooses to identify herself with the people of God, with the Lord's host, and by making that choice to identify with the people of the Lord, she's also going to make the choice to no longer identify with the people who are destined for destruction. This is the place where she grew up. This is the place where she lived. When people trust the Lord Jesus, they want to share that love. They want to share salvation. They want to share with the people who are closest to them. And remember what we've already read. Is that what Rahab does? Does she tell her dad? Does she tell her family? We think that she does because guess what? When Joshua and the people show up, there's Rahab with her entire family. But can you imagine the risk that she's taking the moment that she says, Dad, brothers and sisters, the Jewish people are coming. I think God's given them the land. And I think we're under judgment. Again, imagine the response. That can't be true. Or that is true. And apparently she persuaded them. Because Rahab was delivered from judgment. There were two facts. In fact, there were two judgments. I want you to think about this. First, there was the shaking of the city. Then a fire destroyed all of its contents. Rahab's house was on the wall. That's Joshua chapter 2 verse 15. What happened? It would appear that the section of the wall, which was her house, didn't fall. After Rahab and her loved ones are taken away from their house, Joshua commands the rest of the city to be destroyed with fire. Which means that she and her family were preserved even in the midst of judgment. I want you to think about this for just a moment. Do you think that they were terrified when the walls 
started shaking and crumbling all around them? I'm going to suggest yes. Do you think that they were terrified when a fire starts to sweep over the entire city but leaves them unmolested? I'm going to say, yeah, that's got to be terrifying. But God preserves her and her family in judgment. Wiersbe writes, quote, Christians today see the world shaking all around them, but they can be sure that God will rescue them before he sends his fiery judgment on the world, unquote. Then he quotes 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, and 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 19, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us. And then 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, for God didn't appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ who died for us whether we wake or sleep we're going to be together with him and so we see this world shaking and we see part of the world caught on fire but then we remember something God's made a promise to you and to me you see the bad news we're sinners The bad news, we're condemned. The bad news, we deserve to go to hell. The good news, by faith, God's made a promise to deliver us in Christ. And by the way, there's one more thing. Rahab went to a wedding. Did you know that? In Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, we see Rahab listed by marriage to the Jewish nation and a and named an ancestor of the Messiah. She wasn't simply saved. She was saved for a reason, for a purpose. God was going to use the harlot, Rahab, to further his plan. She believed God. She believed God gave the Jews the land. Did she also come to believe that God would provide a seed? Savior? While the people of Jericho perished, Rahab and her family would live to see a wedding. Her wedding. A wedding feast. She's going to marry a man named Solomon. You know, some Bible scholars have, dare I say it, romanticized that maybe one of the spies was Salmon, that she rescued him and saved him, and he in turn rescued her and saved her, even though she had been a harlot, even though her past was sordid and shameful, God was going to use her And they're going to have children, and their children are going to have children, and their children's children are going to have children, and the former pagan becomes the great, great, great grandmother of David the king. In the book of Revelation, you're promised a wedding. There's wedding plans that have been made for you in Revelation chapter 19, verses 7 through 9. And then again in chapter 
19 verses 17 through 19, there's this picture that Jesus comes back for his bride and you are united with him to be his constant companion throughout eternity. Again, Wiersbe writes, quote, Rahab was saved by faith, not by character or by religious works. This is the only way God saves people. Have you trusted Jesus? Just like Rahab trusted Joshua, unquote. Isn't that good? And so at the end of verse 31, when she had received the spies with peace, she saved by faith. We discover something else. It's a faith that's contagious faith. And she becomes a follower of Jehovah. By the way, the children of Israel did nothing from a military standpoint to overcome Jericho. They simply believed and obeyed God's instructions. Chances are that the thing that's causing you the most problem in your life can be overcome by believing the truth that God says about your identity in him. Not just the current forgiveness, but the future destination where you're headed. She will stand with the Lord. Courage is grace under pressure. It wasn't a Bible theologian who said that. It was Ernest Hemingway. The children of Israel are going to be saved. Rahab's story is littered with grace. She's saved by grace. She becomes a link to the promised seed. By the way, is that your story as well? Sinner, condemned, extended grace, hear the word of God, believe the word of God, tell your family, Delivered from judgment, invited to a wedding. (laughs) In the end, conquering faith is always courageous faith. Someone said, courage consists not in blindly overlooking danger, but in seeing and conquering it. Rahab will reject everything and everyone in order to stand with the people of God in believing the promise of God about the future. Do you depend on the Lord? Can he depend on you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for for grace and mercy and faith Lord, we know that we're sinners. We know that we're condemned. We know that we're extended grace. And Lord, you've given us your word that if we will believe the truth about our condition and and embrace the provision that you've made for us in Christ, that we can experience your love, experience your grace, experience forgiveness in the future. And so once again, Lord, we thank you. 
Lord, we pray that we would build the dikes of courage to hold back the flood of fear as we wonder whether or not (laughs) your grace is sufficient. Lord, we know in moments of clarity that when we open up our Bible and we read what Paul says, my grace is sufficient for you. That Lord, the pain, though maybe not completely eliminated, is at least bearable and the future becomes bright. And so Lord, again, I pray for these men and women. I pray, Lord, that you would fill them with confidence and a conquering faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.